Hi listeners, this is Carolyn. We'll start the episode shortly, but before we do, this is a brief content note to let you know about some of the topics this episode will touch on, so you can figure out for yourself how you want to listen to it, whether this is a good time, or if this is an episode you want to skip for now. Specifically, our guest Nora will share the story of how she came to be the evaluator she is today, and telling that story means discussing the death of her young child from illness. There's also going to be some discussion of systemic racist violence and the implications of that for loved ones. We hope that's helpful information to make this a good podcast listening experience for you. Now, on to the episode. Hi everyone, and welcome to Val Cafe. My name is Brian Hostler, founder of Strong Roots Consulting based in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which is on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Hi everyone, I'm Carolyn Kamen, an independent evaluation consultant working out of Vancouver, BC, coming to you from unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations territory. This podcast is an informal chat on evaluation topics, the kind you might overhear at your favorite coffee shop if your favorite coffee shop were frequented by evaluators. This podcast is for everyone, expert or novice, longtime practitioner, or just starting in the field. Even if you don't identify as an evaluator, as long as you have an interest in evaluation, this podcast is for you. And this week, we are joined by Dr. Nora Murphy-Johnson, uh, who has 20 years of experience supporting learning and social change um, as an evaluator, researcher, and educator. Um, and she's coming to us. She's a founding member of the Terra Luna Collaborative, a co-founder of the Developmental Evaluation Institute, uh, as well as Creative Evaluation, which is something we're going to talk about today on the podcast. Uh, hi, Nora. Welcome to Eval Cafe. Hi. Thank you for inviting me to join you today. Yeah. So um, we, well, okay. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this by reading the sentence that as soon as I read this, I was like, oh my gosh, who is this person? I need to know more about what you're doing. This is coming from uh, something that you wrote with um, uh, Andy Raphael Johnson, um, who I think is your, your, also your co-founder with Creative Evaluation, um, based on something that Michael Quinn Patton wrote back in 1981. Mm -hmm. um, and this is The Calling of Creative Evaluators. And it starts by saying, what is creative evaluation? Uh, creative evaluation is principles-focused, art-infused, developmental evaluation for social justice. And I read that and was like, this is incredible. Someone's actually doing this. Like, oh, those are all things that I love. And <laughs> I, I think I immediately, again, sent it to Brian. I was like, Brian, Brian, can we get these people on the podcast? Because this is amazing. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And then we started interacting on Twitter. And you uh, tweet there through your own account as well as there, there's the creative evaluation account as well mm -hmm. that's full of like amazing quotes. Like sometimes it's like every morning I wake up, I'm like, oh, what's what's been tweeted today? Um, and so... Yeah, we're we're on the podcast today to talk about um, creative evaluation, the the why uh, of creative evaluation, the the essential threads of it, and uh, and something that you're also talking about is evaluation as sacred work. Yes, those are three things that I talk about so often that I don't get invited to dinner parties anymore. <laughs> that and systemic racism and oppression. <laughs> a downer 
or a realist or whatever you want to call it. Well, yes. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, those are absolutely welcome topics on this podcast anytime. <laughs> Great. I was wondering what sentence you would read because, well, let me say, so A. Raphael Johnson or Andy is also my husband. Um, so a lot of my earlier published work is Nora under Nora Murphy, and now it's Nora Murphy Johnson. We were married in uh, June of last year. Um, and when we met, he was uh, thought the evaluation field was something he would like to stay very far away from after <laughs> experience in um, working in Liberia after the Civil War and working with some USAID funding and feeling like evaluation was something done to people, um, not particularly to benefit people, um, or at least the people that he was interacting with every day. So uh, the creative evaluation is co-founded between Andy and myself. And so he's actually an artist and a novelist. And it's through our relationship and our sort of shared commitment to social justice and living out our truths that we came to co-create creative evaluation together. So yeah, just so people know, sometimes they're like, boy, you guys have the same last name. You seem really intimate. <laughs> um, and I was actually at a workshop and I said, you know, I got this idea. That actually the creative evaluation threads. I I got the idea in the middle of the night and I woke up and I turned over to Andy and I was like, Andy, I have this amazing idea. And then I said to the workshop, oh, you you should know we're married. I don't just (laughs) (laughs) all the evaluators that I happen to find synergy with. So um, not that that would be a problem if I did, but (laughs) married. Uh, Yeah. So he is a writer and there's some pieces or some parts of the calling of the creative evaluator that speak to me in such a visceral way. And those are uh, Andy's lines. Mm. And I really appreciate that, that he contributes to creative evaluation. So we talk about creative evaluation as evaluation for truth, justice, and beauty. And there's something about beauty, even when it's painful beauty that I, I just think it reaches into our hearts and our souls and, demands that we pay attention uh so i'm surprised that you quoted one of my lines i i feel like my lines are more transactional (laughs) well there's so i mean that was just the first one i mean there's so many and i can i think this is yeah this is on your website so we'll link this in the show notes as well there is there's so much in in here that was just like the very first thing maybe because it was it was just right there in my face you know it was like it was like dabbing a bingo card of just like oh my god oh my god oh my god what's that oh there's more because it was just everything that I wanted to see in a single sentence. And that was, it was just jam packed, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful document. Um, and, and I could just, I, part of me is tempted to just read the whole thing, but I'll let people read it for themselves. Um, but yeah. And, and I, I love, I had wondered, yeah, I kind of clocked on the last name thing. I thought hmm, I, that, hmm, I wonder. Right. <laughs> so good to have that, that bit of clarification. Um, and I kind of love that this is something that's come out of uh a, re- a relationship and an intimate loving relationship that also feels very right for it. It does. And I'll tell you, because the way that we talk about creative evaluation and I will back up, but it, uh, to talk about that, but it, it's, it is personal and intimate work. And there are times where maybe we get in a fight, like um, married people or people in committed relationships do. And I think, 
What, how crazy are we to try to not only be married and parent together, but have a business together? No, 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 no. We can't, we can't do this anymore. But of course it always works out because we love each other and we keep showing up. And that is that part of why change work is so hard because you care so much and you're in it um, that it hurts when it's not going well. Even if it's just for a couple hours, it can be so painful. So, uh, yeah, I always think about my whole life sort of as a canvas for how I'm thinking about evaluation these days. Uh, but the calling of creative evaluators piece that Andy and I wrote, that's the first time that we ever put the title creative evaluation into the world. And it came from a couple sources. One, um, I'm in, I'm in, in, I am an ambivalent evaluator. I sometimes am part of evaluations that feel like sacred work. I feel like I'm fulfilling my calling. And I am sometimes a part of or witness to evaluations where I think that um, harm is being done to people. Mm. And I often wonder also about the construction of philanthropy because so much evaluation is done to fulfill the requirement of a grant, be it a government grant or a grant or a philanthropic grant. And philanthropy is so fraught with problems. Mm. Um, so I'm working in the U.S. culture and there are a lot of businesses and families that made their money in unethical ways. And, you know, and we have this um, legacy of wealth being passed on through white families differently than families of color and, and white families being able to hold on to their wealth more and accumulate it over time. So, so we have people with lots of money giving out grants that are never actually going to solve the problem, right? They're so disproportionate. Even $100,000, a million dollars to address poverty in a region is, is just not going to do it. And so I sometimes wonder, and then, and then ask for measures that aren't actually the right measures to tell whether we're moving forward. So I sometimes wonder, am I part of a game that is just not the right game? And I am a participant by playing the game? Or is there really actually an opportunity for me to show up and sort of do change from the inside? And depending on the day, I might think one way or the other. Hmm. I was uh, attending a, an online meeting. There's, uh, um, I was talking the last episode that we recorded about my background a little bit in community psychology, which has a bit of a values focus. And the, um, the APA division or society for community psych, they just started up a critical psychology uh, subgroup within that. And during the inaugural meeting, I identified myself as as being part of the, or working within the um, nonprofit industrial complex. And I can't remember where I got that term from, but heard it somewhere. And I think it kind of exemplifies kind of that, that tension that you have identified because we are working within the system and we're trying not to be part of that system or that, um, yeah, that, that um, kind of complex. Yeah. And there's a saying in the U S uh, that you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I reflect on a lot. And so I, I still don't know, but 
Uh, Michael Quinn Patton, who was my advisor and my mentor for my dissertation, and just a dear, dear person to me. I'll, I'm sure I'll talk about him a lot because he has influenced my life in countless ways. Um, he wrote a book called Creative Evaluation, and it was first published in 1981. And a few years ago, he gave me a copy of that book, and it it, it has this simple green cover that just screams 1980s. <laughs> and he put this hot pink post-it note on one of the pages and just wrote on the post-it note, this is for you. And so when I was having one of my days where I thought, my gosh, what am I doing as an evaluator? This is crazy. Something said, go pick up that book. So I did. And he had a section called um, The Calling of Creative Evaluators and how evaluation is noble work and how people whose voices aren't heard in systems need us to show up for them. Um, And so that just got me thinking, if I were to do evaluation in a way that felt noble, that felt like a calling, what would it be? What, What would that look like for me? And I realized looking back over the last few years that when I was doing work like that, I was working for justice and equity. So I was doing social change work. To me, that's intimately tied with doing systems work. I think programs and organizations are super important, but no one can do the kind of change we need in the world alone. So people need to be collaborating to um, affect change in systems. So there's the developmental evaluation and systems change piece. And then the principles focused, um, that was what I did my dissertation on with Michael Quinn Patton was principles focused developmental evaluation. It let me see that we can name our values and we can say, these values are translated into guiding principles, principles that tell us how to act when we're unsure how to proceed next. They tell us how to act when we need to make a decision. So principles can help people work together when the path forward is uncertain. And the principles are our values translated into action. So we can never get lost. Our relationships can fray, our trust can fray, but if we are accountable to principles as much as we're accountable to outcomes, then we can keep finding our way back to the right path. So putting these ideas together and then marrying an artist and realizing that really the only tools I learned in graduate school, and I have a PhD in evaluation, I learned how to present things in a Word document or a PowerPoint. And I will tell you that I've probably never persuaded anyone to change anything important about their life or their beliefs with my paper, my Word document, or my PowerPoint. And I've seen now, um, interacting with artists, how art can, again, reach into people's hearts and souls and allow for a different kind of openness and a different conversation. So all of this thinking, you know, what, what would be my calling? What would be evaluation that was noble? It's evaluation that's done in systems change for justice and equity that is, you know, guided by principles that are rooted in values and that infuse art throughout so that we're asking our hearts and souls to show up, not just our minds. So that's what (laughs) you read in that first sentence and how that first sentence came to be for me. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's beautiful. And and hearing the full, the full story and journey of it, I just feel even more, even more connected with those ideas. Um, 
it's it's a story I feel like I I've definitely been living and also hearing other other people involved in evaluation work talk about as well. We've had some of them on this podcast that I think these are these are very personal very personal intimate struggles that we have as individuals, but it's also a struggle within a community of of us um, as we try to figure out how can we do this work in a way that heals and helps instead of harms because yeah so often the work that we do can be bound up in uh undermining and yeah. and and hurting people and, and hurting communities and not making the changes we need for things to get better and sometimes making the changes for things to get worse right and we always have to consider that we might be doing that making things worse even with our best intentions and that's a certain amount of hum- that's a certain humility that we need to hold when we enter these spaces as evaluators. Um, I have a chapter in uh, might be Michael Quinn Patton's qualitative research book. No, maybe it's his principles book. But anyway, I wrote a chapter about how I came to be a principles focused evaluator, and you might hear me choke up as I talk about this, but. I actually, I was an evaluator before, and I have a master's degree in quantitative methods, and I ended up being a director of assessment and evaluation at a charter school network, and it became very clear to me that my analyses and my reports held power, and that people made change um, because of what my reports shared, which is good, right? That can be an evaluator's dream, but... I didn't know a single student that my numbers were talking about and that just felt wrong. And I didn't know any other way to do it. Right. I, I really only had quantitative training and I thought, my gosh, how can I influence young people's lives without knowing who they are? And, and I was a high school teacher in Washington, DC and loved my kids. Right. So I thought if I knew these kids, I would love them, but I don't know them and I'm making, and I'm exerting influence over their lives. So thinking that that was the only way to do evaluation, I actually left the field and I didn't know what to do next, but I was also at that time found myself a single mom of um, two little boys. Uh, I was living in Chicago and their dad was not in the same city and, and really absent. And my older son got sick when he was two and my younger son was one. It turned out he had a chronic illness and he needed surgery all the time. Um, so I couldn't work, which meant I couldn't pay for my rent. And I didn't know what to do. And really, I thought, maybe I'll move to Massachusetts because in Massachusetts, you can get health care in 24 hours. It's the only state with universal health care. And my sister and her brother, I'm sorry, my brother-in-law, my sister and her husband said, you know, Nora, we can't afford to buy in Chicago, but we could afford to buy a duplex in Minneapolis, where my brother-in-law is from. And if we bought one, would you move there with us? And you could stay there rent-free for as long as you need to. And uh, so I said, yes, thank you, and yes. And we moved here, and I still couldn't work. And I thought, well, I'm good at school, 
And if I go to school, I can access student loans and health insurance. And no matter how frustrated my professor gets with my son's medical schedule and the demands it puts on me, I get a fresh start every semester. So I'll go back to school. And I actually didn't start in an evaluation studies program. I started in something called um, Family, Youth, and Community. It was an interdisciplinary degree. And my son, I found him a great surgeon in Boston. The surgeons here were awful. I could go on and on about the healthcare system, and, um, but I won't. <laughs> but um, he, he died. He died during my third semester of graduate school. And I'm really lucky because the University of Minnesota has a it has a center for spirituality and healing. And I needed to stay in school because my other son was in a university-based childcare setting, and it was the only thing that was consistent in his life. And I just knew I needed to keep him in that school. So I needed to stay in school so he could be in school. So I took a whole semester of classes at the Center for Spirituality and Healing and um, was introduced to ideas of healing on purpose, which is this double play of <laughs> choosing to heal and healing because you're doing your work that fulfills your purpose. And I didn't know what to do next, but I met Jean King, who is one of the loveliest people in the world and um, has been influential for a long time in the field of evaluation. And she said, come over to our program and I'll take care of you. So I did. So I transferred to evaluation. That's how I ended up back as an evaluator. Um, and then she introduced me to Michael Quinn Patton and we talked and talked for a long time over a couple months and um, he invited me into a project that ended up being my dissertation. So between the two of them, I found my way back to evaluation that's heart-centered and um, it wasn't at all like the evaluation I was practicing before. But I share that story because um, I had the unfortunate but powerful instance of having to wake up that when my son died, I thought, oh my gosh, what even made sense about what I did as a parent? Like, what did I give him that I can feel good about? And I realized it was for him, it was that he was loved and he was valued and um, that I would either keep him safe or I would walk with him when he, when I couldn't keep him safe. And that none of the rules about how much TV he should watch or shouldn't watch or how many vegetables he should eat, like none of that mattered, right? When I looked back at his life. And so I started to think about what are the principles that I should live by going forward so that I can feel like I'm honoring him, I guess. It sounds weird to say, but that's how I think about it. Mm -hmm. So I um, had this moment in my life that forever changed me and I think put me on a path that I can't do anything but try to figure out what my sacred work is. Mm. Um, and I, I keep staying in evaluation because in a way, I don't know, I, it's here. <laughs> it keeps coming back. <laughs> when I try to leave, it keeps coming back. So maybe there's something there. Like maybe this is my change space right now. Um, maybe this is where my work is supposed to be. So that's what I'm playing with uh, by trying 
without this idea of creative evaluation. I keep, um, I keep thinking about the con- the last conversation we had on this podcast, um, where we were talking about uh, learning journeys and and how people become evaluators and how that's been uh, changing, and just hearing your story, Nora, your beautiful story, and thank you for sharing that mm-hmm. with us and with our listeners. I keep thinking about how personal these journeys really are and how they are so much more than a classroom experience and and how they are so much more about just what happens in the in the mind what we what we learn uh sort of in the head but you've also talked about the the heart and the soul and the spirit and it just yeah hearing that as as your journey um which will always be your personal journey. That's not something that anyone else can replicate, but it's clearly just shaped you and, and the pro and the path that you're, you're taking as an evaluator. But I just, I keep thinking about like what, what a amazing space for us to get to explore what evaluation is. I think that's one of my attractions to the profession, at least right now, is that it is such a personal thing. And I think there are some other there's some other careers and professions out there like this, but it's so much more than a profession and a career. It really is a life journey. Mm. I feel like the more evaluators I talk to, it, it isn't just like, oh, this is this is my um this is my job or this is my career. This is my, it's like, this is my, myself. This is how I'm, I'm learning how to be in the world. It has yeah. that dimension. Yeah. And I would say, I, I think there are certainly people who have evaluation as a career and a job and it's great and it's what they need and they're providing a service that's needed. I, there are just so many learning journeys. We need people to be able to do them in different ways. So I don't want to suggest that the way I practice is how all evaluation should happen, but I, I talked a lot about the heart and the spirit and um, what marrying Andy has helped me also understand is the role of the body. Um, So Andy is African-American and our kids are mixed. We have um, kids that are, uh, mixed with white, African-American, Native American, and Philippines. And so I'm in our nuclear family right now, I'm the only white person in, in the language of the U S. And so it's, I, uh, how should I say this? When Tanahasi Coates wrote between the world and me, and he didn't talk about people who were white or brown or black or African-American. He said brown bodies, brown and black bodies, and people who call themselves white, right? So this construct of whiteness that then creates danger for people who live in brown and black bodies. Um, and then I just have been reading this book about uh, called My Grandmother's Hands about 
healing intergenerational trauma. And he also talks about how intergenerational trauma lives in our bodies. And he writes his book to three different audiences, to white bodies, to black and brown bodies, and to police bodies. So another thing about art and about what I'm sort of a learning edge for me is how bodies show up in this work, because I'm really worried about my family's bodies when they leave the house, Hmm. because they are perceived as dangerous, which makes them unsafe. There's nothing they can do to people who want to see them as dangerous will see them as dangerous. And there's nothing that they can do. So um, to me, a lot of the healing that we need to do is in our bodies. A lot of the pain that we feel and the struggles that we face in our society are because of experiences and sensations that we have and hold in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's become a part of it for me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I hold a lot of trauma in my own body. And so I've spent most of my life disconnecting from my body. So I, it's not even a surprise that I left it out <laughs> when I was talking in the beginning, because it takes active work for me to reintegrate that into the way I think about my work, that my body is a part of the work. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I have a, I have a similar um, experience um, with embodiment is a really big um it's part of my practice I'm exploring. Um, it's, I think it's one of the reasons why I've been so interested in um, arts-focused methods as well, because it's there's so much art brings your body into it. It, it affects yeah. your body and it, and it requires your body. I also, over the last few years, have had a lot of both, deal, you know, acknowledging trauma and, and how that affects my life and also dealing with some chronic injuries that made me have to confront how how very little relationship I had with my body and Mm -hmm. I found that my evaluation work has been a big part of my my growth and healing uh practice around that um I used to use work to distract myself from having to deal with with uh Mm -hmm. having a body that's a that's a mess and what I do now more and more is try to find ways to bring my body into my practice Mm -hmm. Um, and bring my practice into my body. <laughs> um, yes. Yes, I hear that. Um, and I, one of the projects that I've evaluated is called the Wellbeing Project, and it works with um, trying to change the, the social change field around the globe to be one that's more supportive of um, the well-being of the social change leaders, and that if whole and healed people were doing social change work, maybe what they created would be different and would promote wholeness and healing. Um, And yeah, it made it clear to me that not only did I use my intellect as a way to disconnect from my body, but also I was rewarded for that over and over and over again. Yeah. Right. So I did something that was hurting me, but all my external awards told me to keep doing it and do more. Yeah. And I, I find when I, um, the way I treat myself becomes the way I treat other people. And when Mm -hmm. I, when I treat myself really carelessly, when I, when I don't attend to my needs, that's when I find myself in the space of not thinking about what other people might need. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
And hearing what you're both saying, it's kind of got me thinking a little bit around. I wonder if part of maybe what calls some of us around like to this kind of more creative evaluation path or this kind of direction is experience and seeing a disconnect between kind of the way things are told to us that they should be and us kind of recognizing that know what's actually happening out there, what our own experiences are, the experiences of our of our, our family or our, those who are close to us or just what we see in our communities is different from what we're told the way things should be or even what the way things are that we see this this um, lack of connection between kind of reality and 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 the messaging we're getting out there and maybe that kind of gives us this insight around wanting to to know about these different stories and to to share them and all that but also yeah then leads to potential trauma for us as well kind of recognizing this the way things are aren't the way that the way things are actually yeah um i i will i i love providing reading lists when i give workshops and whatnot because i i almost i read very little these days that is written by evaluators i read so much by people trying to make sense of the world and um, so I talked about the the healing in the body, and um, I would recommend The Body Keeps the Score, which is a really comprehensive look at how our body knows what our mind doesn't always know. Um, and Brian, to your point, there's a book called uh, Trauma Stewardship. Mm-hmm. So how do we care for each other and ourselves when we are also caring and holding other people's traumas through our work? Mm-hmm. I just have to point this out. So I have my microphone on a stack of books right now um, so that it's at, at mouth level. And the one to the, the fourth book down is Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. Wow. Yes. <laughs> it's an amazing, amazing book. Reading Trauma is such a huge part of the work that we do. It's such a huge part of the world that we live in. There's so much trauma everywhere around us we li- we have created societies that that are traumatizing mm-hmm. um, the world itself does not inherently have to be traumatizing but we have created communities and societies and families and spaces that are traumatizing um in so many ways and there's so much trauma in the world and i think a huge part of evaluation work is um is working with trauma and working toward healing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can think of some examples of some of, of work with my with different clients and different organizations where it was like, wow, this is, I think for one project, there was a case point where I said, like, I'm talking to broken people in a broken system. And that's kind of trying to figure out how to, to navigate those tensions, navigate that, what I was seeing and trying to contribute to to addressing some of that brokenness, but also um, trying to, to, you know, maintain a, a good self-integrity for myself as well as part of that. And I'm just looking at, um, uh, the essential threads for the, for, on the creative evaluation website. And the second last one is, uh, take care, heal and grow. And I think, um, mm-hmm. Nora, like what you were saying about kind of being fully into this work and seeing it, and I can't remember the exact words you use in terms of being a path or kind of having that on the soul level, 
you know, the, the one counter that some people might have to that is to, you know, uh, have some sort of um, split between the work and, and personal life. And I don't, I think that's an oversimplification. Um, and, but I guess the question that I have is how do you kind of be able to immerse yourself fully into this? And then as that thread says, you know, take, take care and heal and grow when we are dealing with this kind of level of, of, of trauma or just seeing, you know, seeing problems. Cause that's kind of part of our work is to see what's, what's not working. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a great question. So I, one thing I want to say, <laughs> these creative threads, mm-hmm. uh, creative evaluation, essential mm-hmm. threads, uh, there are some things in here that are very traditional, but there are some things that aren't. So it starts with just the concepts of truth, justice, and beauty with this, um, Ernie house in, in one of his books about, uh, validity said essentially that there's no persuasive argument for change that, um, doesn't have the elements of truth, beauty, and justice, right? So if we want to get someone to change, we need to present them a persuasive argument that has elements of truth, beauty, and justice, and that really spoke to me, and so that I'm playing with that. Um, but the next set of threads are about knowing yourself and knowing others and how change happens and knowing all of that, how to act as a leader and a facilitator for change. And I didn't learn very much of that, if anything, in graduate school. So the reason that I brought up my family before um, is because social justice and equity to me is an everyday thing, right? Like I want the world to be better for them today. So it's not a job. I can't think of it as a job because it is my lived experience. It is my care and love for my family and my coworkers that makes me want this change to happen as quickly as possible. Um, and what I've also found, like you said about Caroline, about, um, sorry, as you said, Caroline, about healing and hurting, it's like if we are committed to showing up in places to work towards social justice and equity, we are there because there is injustice and inequity. So we cannot do social justice and equity oriented work without spending time in the trauma and the hurts of past and present injustices and inequities and like I shared that this is a thing that I think about and live every day out of care and concern for my family members this is true for a lot of people and if we show up as fake or inauthentic or um, conceited or thinking we have all the answers then people aren't going to let us in and if they don't let us in then we can't see what we need to see as evaluators to support the learning that we all need to engage in. So I see that knowing myself and trying to be whole is something that I need to do to be an instrument of evaluation, to be seen as trustworthy and credible in spaces where people are hurt over and over and over again. Mm I start the idea of what it means to be a creative evaluator with the self. Because if we don't show up with a self that is reflective and whole and humble, we cannot do our work. 
And then Brian, to your question of take care and heal and grow at the end, I think I added that because what I have seen in myself is that when I overwork, I hurt everyone around me. So I'm cranky, I'm short-tempered, I, I say yes to things I can't follow through on, and I end up letting coworkers down and hurting my family because they're the ones I'm most likely to lash out at when I'm feeling overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So I have to figure it out, right? Like I have to figure out how to help the world in whatever way I can be of service without also hurting the people around me. And what I've also learned from being married and parenting is that when I hurt myself, I'm also hurting my spouse and my kids because they're not separate from me. They can't just not be affected by my hurt. So how do I show up and take responsibility for my own pain and my own healing and my own self-care? Um, I don't have it all figured out yet, but I, it's clear to me that I, that needs to be something that I'm always actively trying to figure out. Yeah. And this brings me all back to two recent episodes, one with Chris Corrigan and talk his point around how evaluators are not usually seen as bringing something to the, t- like we're the only ones who kind of take from the relationship we don't give. And um, later conversation with with Jade about yeah like what what is the gifts of evaluation I think maybe that it has yeah. to be the gift is that we come as 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 people as individuals who who have this understanding who've who've kind of grappled maybe even with some of this uh, uh, these traumas or the these these ideas but have done some of the self work too to to not be be bound by them or be flailing as a result of them. Yeah, and that comes with a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. So there are times when we shouldn't be in the space because we know we can't um, stop flinging our hurtful <laughs> emotions all over the place, right? So part of recognizing our own selves and our own work is knowing where we need to say, no, thank you. This isn't my project. Mm-hmm. Um but I say that all the time. There's no shame in, in, even when someone says, we would love to work with you as an evaluator, to say, you know what? I actually can't work well in that space for whatever reason that that situation or that topic is triggering for me or, or brings me into a place of um, unfinished work where I can't be your effective ally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the Developmental Evaluation Institute, we have guiding principles for um, our ways of working because we say that in an, in a developmental evaluation, the primary tool is the evaluator and you will never get the same developmental evaluation twice um, because the evaluator is such an important part of what gets co-created because co-creation happens through relationship. And so what we suggest in this ways of working is that in order to show up, in again these spaces of equity and justice we need to be able to cultivate and support loving relationships um, to cultivate a spirit of generosity to live into connectedness and try not to oversimplify by boxing things um, that we try to show up as our whole selves so we can invite wholeness instead of fragmentation so we have about eight 
guiding principles about how we show up. And I think of it in a couple ways. One, let's say we're just taking the ability to cultivate loving relationships. If I can't love myself, it's much harder for me to cultivate loving relationships between other people. Um, if I'm working with a group where I just disagree with them so much that I can't extend love, then maybe I shouldn't be there. And, and as I pay attention to my ability to love or the places where it's harder for me to love, notice what that feels like. Because any feeling I have around love, other people are going to be feeling in any group that I'm working with. So, you know, what frees up love? What makes love stop flowing? Um, when do defenses go up? I, I can understand groups better by watching all of that in myself. You know, I was thinking a little bit earlier in the episode just around, I think he had a line about um, accountability to principles and that got me thinking about, you know, uh, some pushes towards professionalization of the field. There's seems to be a perpetual topic on, uh, on some of the listservs and such. And the kind of the idea of accountability to principles kind of spoke to me around how, and I think Bob Williams at some point uh, talks about um uh, and, uh, you can't have accountability. Like you need a higher level to be accountable to. You can't have accountability okay. within yourself. Within the, the field, can't be accountable to itself. It has to be accountable to something higher up because it just doesn't work that way. So, yeah, that's just something that kind of came to mind um, uh, hearing you speak there. Yeah, because I wish that I, I don't even use the word program evaluation anymore for myself because I'm rarely evaluating a program. And programs have certain limitations that systems don't have that make evaluation different. Mm. Um, so I want evaluation to be accountable to a better world, a more just and equitable world, a more truthful, beautiful, and just world, not a field that improves programs. Because I really don't care that much about programs, right? Unless it's a program that is helping us get towards this um, more utopic world, right? That is, is possible. Um, but so, yeah, so I agree. Like the field itself, I wish had a higher level of accountability that was steps beyond um, being good at evaluating programs. And I recently, Andy and our family and I, we went to the Monterey conference, which is the first ever indigenous people's conference on evaluation. And it was hosted by the Maori evaluation um, group in New Zealand. And most evaluators were indigenous evaluators. And I think they were from seven different countries around the world. And sitting at the front of the room every day were five elders from different tribes or iwis in New Zealand. And everyone at the conference was accountable to them as culture keepers and culture holders. So instead of the accountability being, how do we make indigenous-centered evaluation credible to the evaluation field? The elders made sure that everyone's presentation put accountability to Maori people first. And it was so powerful to experience that kind of accountability. Mm-hmm. That's a that's such a powerful shift. And yeah, a shift beyond because we've talked about, you know, the way accountability to uh, funders can really distort um, the work that's done and accountability, but accountability within the field and accountability to whom and having the presence of, of 
the the leaders of the community in that room like wow what a powerful um mm-hmm. a powerful change that that would have on that situation yeah and i'm leaning more and more into my role of a white person who can talk to other white people and um, what it means to talk to a foundation that is largely run by white people working communities of color to say to them, I know you think you're doing well, but you have a lot further to go. And part of this renewed commitment to me is comes from being at this conference and hearing from indigenous people from seven different countries from around the world who had the same colonizer story over and over and over, right? They came, they took our land, our resources, our children, our religion, our language. And um, the process of trying to rebuild and reclaim from that mass destruction I mean, so when we talk about why do we live in cultures where there's so much hurt and so much need for healing, um, colonization happened right all over the world with boundaries drawn that divided people in ways that caused fraction and war and division. And we're still living with that reality. We're still living in that um, constructed worldview. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so what do we do? And again, I know that I'm talking in a very American way, but what do we do to see where we centered things in whiteness so that it benefits white people and hurts people of color? And this is one of my fears about professionalization. I worry about professionalization of evaluation that privileges graduate degrees that privileges university-based learning. Um, Our university systems here are so situated in whiteness and white culture that they're really hard for some other communities and cultures to access, to get into and survive. The dropout rate for black men in um, the University of Minnesota's undergraduate program is 50% by the end of four years. This isn't that these young men are not smart and able. We have an institution that is, doesn't make it equally easy for people to succeed. So if we have an institution that privileges some people's success over another, and then we tie professionalization to these graduate degrees or these university-based Um, credits or certifications, we are going to disproportionately welcome some people into the field over others. And I worry about that. I really worry about how often we are working in communities of color um, in different oppressed universities and that the evaluators show up never having experienced that kind of oppression. Mm -hmm. So I, again, to a higher calling, if we want a better world and a more just and equitable world, we need people who actually can see and hear and be told the things that we most need to know to do the kind of change that people really need. And so we need a very diverse field, 
people with all different talents and ways of seeing and being and experiencing life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, if we, if, if we build a system within a system that is already inherently colonialist and white supremacist, then whatever we build within that system is going to absorb um, and, and operate on those principles as well. So when mm-hmm. I think the question around professionalization is really interesting. We've been having, Brian and I have been having conversations mm-hmm. about this on and off and I've um, yeah, I, 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 I think I've talked on the podcast before about, about sharing some of those fears and um, I, even just the training that we receive. I mean, universities are mm-hmm. deeply colonial and white supremacist institutions. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that the, the individual, all the individual people in them and working in them are bad people, but it's the, the institutions themselves operate in those ways. Um, they're, you know, we, we know this, we can, we can listen to the words of people who uh, experience that firsthand um, and I have also been able to reflect on my own experiences going through university as a white person and see the ways in which um, I was rewarded for um, conforming to a status quo of making some decisions and not other decisions of thinking in a certain way, working in a certain way, and and very much was rewarded for doing that. Um, and that made my life in, in school easier as a white person. Um, and the same decisions would not necessarily have made life easier if I had not been white. Um, And so when we think about the training that we're receiving and where that training is coming from, and again, even when it comes with the best intentions, uh, intentions alone are often not even remotely enough to actually work against the the system that is designed to destroy. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is something that we're doing with creative evaluation, and I'm still pinching myself because I can't believe this is working. But we thought, well, if Andy and I are the only two people who know what we're talking about, um, that's a problem. And we actually get a, a lot of requests for work that we just can't respond to because there's um, only two of us right now. So we thought, well, how do we build, how do we invite more people in? And maybe build more leadership, thought leadership, evaluation leadership. So we put out a call for cohort members and we said, hey, we're trying to do this thing called creative evaluation. We don't exactly know what it is yet, but here are the pieces. And we're inviting people, six to eight people, to join us for nine months to devote 10 hours a week for nine months to help build this and practice this thing that we're calling creative evaluation. So we got 13 people to apply and uh, we have now a really solid group of seven people and we meet twice a week and we talk through these essential threads and we're taking on our first clients and we meet in the, a community house that's owned by artists and is open for artists and we're just trying to figure out, um, is this a way to build evaluation capacity differently that's community-based and outside of a university? And, you know, we didn't ask for anybody's resume. Mm. They're all different kinds of artists and social change workers. And we talk about things both that you might find in a traditional evaluation classroom, but we also just had in my dad this week who's visiting from New Hampshire, who is a hospice worker. 
and um, an oncology nurse. And, and we said, you know, we recognize that sometimes what we need to do is let an organization die gracefully. Mm-hmm. Sometimes no one has done anything wrong and there isn't anything to fix. It's just time to move on. And uh, that we have this, you know, someone who's a movement person, she would just show us, you know, the hands gripping on the bar when your fingers are starting to slip and you're trying so hard to hold on and maybe it's, it's time to let go. So we have my dad come in to talk about what is it like to help someone pass on when they don't want to and it wasn't planned and it wasn't expected? And how do you help the family who's always in that room who have different ideas about how the end should be or how, how, what you should do to prolong it? You know, what, it, what does it look like to really do that with people? And then what can we learn as evaluators in our practice at helping pe- you know, hospice organizations or programs? That's yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. I just, it made me immediately think of the fact I was listening to a podcast last week, one of my favorite podcasts, um, the good ancestor podcast with Layla Saad. I'm going to link it in the show notes because everyone should listen to it. It's awesome. Okay. Uh, and it just started. So you don't have to like catch up on three years worth of back <laughs> episodes. Um, but there was a, an episode recently with a woman named Latham Thomas, who works as a, uh, a doula. And they were yes. just talking about the that as, as a revolutionary activist and healing and sacred work. And I was just listening, thinking, I mean, they're not talking about evaluation. It was not about evaluation at all, but I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, this is so relevant and applicable to evaluation. The work that we do supporting people in a time of bringing new life into the world mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. that takes. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, on the, on the, the, I would say the flip side, but it's more just like, right beside it on on the cycle right you know uh, hospice work and 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 death work um there's so much the evaluation is all around us evaluation is not something that lives in a university or um it's not something that we have invented as a modern technology it is something that it's so essential to being a human being yes Mm. Um, and it's so it's so its lessons are absolutely everywhere. Yes, and a doula is next on our list because, like with death, I, I know I was caught by surprise when I became a mom at how that there was mourning involved, that there was a an identity that I had a freedom that I had that was related to my identity that I no longer had as a mother. I couldn't just say, yeah, okay, I'll meet you. Like now I will always have to think of my kids first. I love mm-hmm. my kids. I want to think of them first, but I lost something in that. And I wasn't surprised that that would be something that I would grieve or that even though I loved being a mom to babies, that I was exhausted and needed breaks and needed help. So I do think that um, sometimes we treat birth as good and celebratory and death is bad and mournful and and they're both both mm-hmm. my dad said as a as an oncology nurse people would say to him um boy your days must be so hard and he said i he'd stop and think no actually he had a pretty good day <laughs> and he said what people liked when he interacted with them is that they just got to be normal that they could tell jokes and laugh 
um, because sometimes when their family was around them, it was all sadness. Mm. And there was still the part of them that wanted to laugh and watch a silly TV show. Mm-hmm. So I think they're both, both. And we do disservice to these movements of change if we don't, again, like the wholeness of it, right? To to welcome in all the emotions that are associated with birthing and with passing on. Mm-hmm. 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 And the people, I mean, the people we work with, I, I, this is this for me has always been true. Um, someone cares about that program a lot. Yes. Mm-hmm. Someone cares about it a lot. For mm-hmm. someone, it is the thing that they get up in the morning thinking about, go to bed at night thinking about, and it's it's their passion and their love. And so the work that we do with the people who are affected by the, whether it's programs, whether it's systems, institutions, whatever level we're working at, this is such human personal work and it can't be distilled into a, a logic model um, or, right. or, or a executive summary. We might use those tools because they have spaces where they're helpful, but they're not the essence of what we do. Right. Cause I'll mm-hmm. go back to the idea that probably some of the most important work is life or death work, right? If you can help a young person experiencing homelessness be off the street and safe, you might be saving their life. If you can help police officers and these young people experiencing homelessness have a better relationship, you could be preventing a really traumatic encounter. So even programs have outlived perhaps their lifespan or need to just really be rethought and done differently are still tied to probably a point in their lives where they were saving other people's lives. And it's hard to let go of that and trust that something equally or more effective will fill that void. Again, I think that's why this work has to be co-creative and founded on trust and shared values. Mm. Mm -hmm. There was something, there was something, Brian, that you said earlier that I just wanted to come back to as we're coming to the end of of the episode. But Brian, you had talked about having an experience of um, realizing you were you were working with you called you said broken people in in broken systems, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I have learned and I'm continually in the process of learning and trying to move this learning from my head down and in, into my body, and really embody this is that healing comes from people too. That there's mm-hmm. this there is so much capacity for resilience and growth and healing, no matter how dark and messed up your life has gotten you know people have that capacity to come back and so when when we talk about working collaboratively with people it's not just because it's oh it's the nice thing to do and you want to hear from folks and get buy-in it's because that's where the work is when we work collaboratively we're tapping into that capacity for growth and healing and the more people we have involved in that the more we can do yeah, we mm-hmm. can't do it alone. Yes. We have work that we must do alone, but we can't do it all alone. Which is yeah, what fascinates me about that uh, that uh, the group that you were talking about, because um, <clears throat> um, we talked about in some recent episodes about you know with conferences and that about trying or just kind of reaching out to to our different disciplinary roots or different fields to different people doing the same work. But I think that's kind of 
it sounds like you're actually you're doing that and in a very intentional way. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning more and hearing more about um, kind of what comes out of those conversations. Thanks. And Brian, I wanted to follow up too, just, just uh, on that word brokenness, mm-hmm. because um, I know you meant it generously. And I, and I think sometimes people hear it and feel shame. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually told my therapist that when my son died, I broke. And she said, no, 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 don't use that word. You're not broken. And I was like, no, no, something in me broke. <laughs> like, I know you don't want me to feel shame around that concept, but I'm here to tell you something in me broke. And so we actually had a lot of talk around that term brokenness and whether mm-hmm. it opens possibilities or makes someone feel shut down. So um, I think I shifted her language a bit to that it helped me to see myself as broken, mm-hmm. but that's not going to be true for everyone. Um, but that's part of this is language is powerful. How do we find the language that lets us see more clearly and create sort of a liberating space instead of an oppressive space? And, um, you know, part of all of this work is using language thoughtfully and understanding what people, it lands differently with some people than with others. Uh, and I make lots of mistakes. And thinking about the Leonard Cohen quote about, uh, cracks are where the light comes in. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. I love that one. Mm-hmm. And it's true. And it's so hard to admit that the death of my son could have created cracks that light is shining through. I think if he hears me saying that, which I'm sure he does, that it makes him smile. But it's a weird thing to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, the space that invites the wholeness, the light and the shadow the broken and the healed, like we need to be able to sit with all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of want to, I want, I want to read a little bit more from the, the calling of creative evaluators. I actually wanted to read um, the last paragraph of it here. I was thinking of it when you were introducing the the story of that uh, article to us, Nora, and I just want to, read that paragraph. And then again, we'll link it in the show notes so people can read the whole thing. Um, Evaluation is noble. Beyond the contracts, the statistics, the eval talk debates, the tenure systems, the fallibility of our methods, the paradigms that limit our vision, behind the trappings of our discipline, we hear a noble calling. We listen. We keep faith. We believe. We work together to deliver on the promises of our discipline and profession. At stake is the potential for social change initiatives to benefit from learning. At stake is the quality of the lives of our fellow human beings. At stake is a more just and equitable world. Yes. Thank you for reading that. I take a lot of heart and spirit and inspiration from knowing that there's, there's a a lot of us out there who are drawn to words like these and who are thinking about words like these and trying to live in them. Mm-hmm. Nora, is there anything that you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up the episode? Uh, if they listened all the way to the end, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you. Um, and if you want to see more, we have our website, uh, www.creativeeval.com. And we're going to be um, listing some upcoming workshops and a second cohort, which will 
launch in November. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Any any room in that cohort for people who aren't local? <laughs> yes, actually, this is a low residency cohort. So we knew we needed to do the first one locally with gracious people who would let us mess up every single day. The second cohort's going to need to be gracious. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, we're really, really making this up as we go. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's going to be low residency. So meeting in person three times during a year and then um, doing the rest of the work distance oh. over the internet. Amazing. Great. Oh, that's yeah. like a beautiful opportunity. Everyone, everyone stay tuned for that. All right. Mm-hmm. Nora, thank you so much for joining us today and for bringing your, your truth, your beauty, your justice, and your love. Mm-hmm. It's been a very moving conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you both. That's it for this episode of Eval Cafe. Thank you to all our listeners. Please check out the rest of our episodes on Pinecast, iTunes, or Google Play, or by going to our website, evalcafe.wordpress.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at evalcafe. And if you want to drop us a line, you can find us at evalcafe.podcast at gmail.com. Musical credits go to Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com for Poppers and Prosecco, our intro theme, and Dispersion Relation, our outro, as well as to Tim at tabletopaudio.com, the lively cafe ambiance in our intro. Well, what Andy, what I find when I want to work with new evaluators who can do this kind of creative evaluation, one of the skills that's hardest to come by is systems thinking Mm. that people can see from different perspectives and hold multiple and conflicting truths. And um, Andy said, oh, that comes easily to me because I learned it in theater. Like the show is different from stage left and stage right from the first row and the balcony. And um, the truth is that it's too loud and it's not loud enough (laughs) or whatever. Right. And I thought, oh, my God, such a beautiful way to use theater as um, an illustration of systems thinking. So he has all kinds of ideas because (laughs) from theater, I think he was undergrad theater major and then he was a stage manager for a long time and that shows up in the way he thinks about evaluation you know everywhere oh man i figured out our next podcast guest brian (laughs) (laughs) add him to the list (laughs) yeah